This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at a new comprehensive North Carolina energy law. For the News and Observer, I'm Lucille Sherman, your host for this episode of Under the Dome. It's Friday, October 22nd. This is our first Closer Look episode in a while, as my colleague Tyler Dukes has put together a special edition podcast on redistricting in North Carolina that's run every Friday for the last four weeks in place of our Closer Look episodes. If you haven't given that redistricting special edition podcast a listen, it's very binge-worthy and I highly recommend it. But today I'm talking with my colleague Adam Wagner, our climate change and environmental reporter, about a bill Governor Cooper signed into law last week with much fanfare, I would argue. Republicans, Democrats, lobbyists, and advocates all came together for the bill's signing. Adam, I wondered if you could give us sort of an overview of what this new law does. Sure. Thanks, Lucille. So House Bill 951 basically requires Duke Energy to cut its emissions dramatically by 2030, so 70% from 2005 levels, and then hit net zero by 2050. So that would mean pretty much a very close to renewable or, or nuclear um, energy structure by the middle of this century. It also provides some some securitization for old coal plants and basically puts all of this under the purview of the North Carolina Utilities Commission. Um, that is important because legislators aren't making these decisions. It, it's the appointed officials of the Utilities Commission. What were the origins of the legislation? Sort of how did this come about? So this legislation has kind of been a a through line of this entire legislative session. And it it started back in the beginning of the year with these closed-door negotiations between House Republicans, Duke Energy, some manufacturing um, lobbyists, and some clean energy lobbyists. We'd all kind of heard about these conversations, I think, but they had an agreement that anything in that room wouldn't get talked about outside of that room. So it was kind of the backdrop against which the entire rest of the session was happening. As that was going on, Governor Cooper had to replace Michael Regan, who'd been appointed to lead EPA. So he put up Dion Delegati, who's a clean energy expert. Michael Regan was the Department of Environmental Quality Secretary, and Cooper was nominating Delegati for that new role, right? For DEQ Secretary, yeah, of course. Um, And she had her confirmation process, and it did not go well. She became the first appointee to ever be turned down by legislative Republicans, and they at the time said that it was because She either wasn't giving them straight answers or didn't know the governor's stance on natural gas. So Delgatti then, the governor turned around and hired her as his clean energy director at DEQ. So she was going to be part of his administration. And then shortly after that happened, the House rolled out this energy legislation. And it was met with a lot of criticism. It, It basically prescribed solutions. So like Duke Energy has coal plants and it basically agreed to get rid of some of these coal plants and the General Assembly in this legislation said you'll replace some of them 
with a natural gas plant or with a solar plant. And that historically is not a legislative decision. There's been one other time when that had been done by the legislature, but otherwise that is up to the Utilities Commission. Mm. And so there were all kinds of concerns. There are also concerns this bill, the original version, didn't go far enough in getting rid of greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, so we have this months-long behind-closed-doors stakeholder process that seems not exactly like good governance. And then they roll out the bill simultaneously as the Senate declines to confirm Cooper's nominee for DEQ secretary. And then the bill sort of disappears. The House passed the legislation kind of quickly, but there still wasn't as much support as I think House Republican leadership thought there would be. And then it was the Senate's turn to carry the legislation. And then what happened from there? Yeah, so the the bill that we saw originally that got through the House was 49 pages long, and it was complicated stuff. It was very technical. It was a lot of utilities law. Utilities law is pretty dense, um, to put it mildly. To sort of explain how complicated this bill was, Adam and I got a copy of the legislation, I think right before it went public, and we had very little time to sort of read it and write it up, and I think we spent like really the whole day sort of looking through it before we got a story posted, like around the time that it was sort of making the rounds publicly was when we finally (laughs) sort of had an understanding about the legislation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm still not all the way sure that we understand that original piece (laughs) of legislation. So, but to be fair, when it came out, John Zoka, the representative from Fayetteville, who, who was really kind of heading this up for House Republicans, said, this is going to change. And, and he was open about that. And there was kind of an acknowledgement that the the bill that we saw at first wasn't going to be the final bill. Now, after the bill got to the Senate and was met with, again, a lot of public criticism, it kind of went into a black hole. And what was happening when it went into the black hole was that Senate Republicans, so some of, of um, Phil Berker's staff, Paul Newton, they were negotiating with Dion Delegati, who in her new stance as clean energy director was very interested in this legislation. And Senate Democrats were also talking with Delegati, so they were having conversations and, and they were definitely having input. But the main players were really Berger staff and Delegati as far as we can tell. Right. So Senate Leader Phil Berger's staff and Cooper's, the governor's staff, were sort of once again hashing this out behind closed doors, which is slightly different than the previous hashing out behind closed doors in the sense that it was more of a bipartisan effort at this stage in the process. But still, after sort of a little bit of frustration about how the process had gone the entire year, it sort of went back into the black hole, which I think is an important point. Um, And then after sort of, it had to have been months of negotiations, yeah, we heard rumblings that there was 
a deal incoming. Um, and the bill was unveiled on a Friday and hit the first Senate committee on a Tuesday, I think, maybe a Monday. Monday or Tuesday, and was passed by the legislature later that week. And the bill had to go back over to the House. So it made it through all of its Senate committees, was passed on the Senate floor, went back to the House floor so the House could approve it, and then was sent to the governor's desk, who then signed it within a week, I think a little less than a week later. One thing that we should mention is that when this bill came back, it it was, when it became public again, the governor's office... Senate Leader Phil Berger's office, Speaker Tim Moore's office, and the Democratic leaders in, in each chamber all put out a joint press release, basically praising this bill and, and saying that it was a solid piece of legislation. We don't see that amount a lot of a lot of pieces of legislation, especially before they're passed. So, by the time this bill reemerged, leadership throughout the General Assembly and in the governor's office thought this deal was done. Yeah, and that's sort of, you know, the third point that I'll make on the process of this legislation, which was behind closed doors in the first step, behind closed doors in the second step, and then when it was finally unveiled, it was kind of like no lawmakers should really be making any amendments to this legislation. The people who orchestrated this legislation, wanted it to sort of sail through the legislature and be signed by the governor. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunity for input. Yeah, and this would come back up in committee when on on the very first page of the new legislation, which is now, I think, 10 pages down from 49 pages, it's a much much more digestible bill than it was. Um, There's a line at the bottom that if read in a certain light, could indicate that Duke Energy and the Utilities Commission will be on the same page as deciding what North Carolina's energy future will be. And it's clear that I think that the people who crafted the legislation wanted the Utilities Commission to be at the wheel. And so this came up in committee. And there was some discussion about a technical amendment to kind of fix this and clarify the Utilities Commission is in charge. Duke even wrote a letter to to lawmakers saying we think the utilities commission is in charge we're not going to be the we'll put together a a plan saying here's how our carbon is going to be reduced but ultimately the the utilities commission will have the final say and so this thing that everyone agreed on didn't get amended in the bill when in some other pieces of legislation maybe some some lower stakes pieces of legislation that would have been changed in the committee process and it wouldn't have been any problem. Right. That's the whole point of the committee process in theory is sort of for people to make suggestions and make changes to make the bill better. So then comes my next question, which I think is your favorite question about this legislation. I say that very sarcastically. What did our Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, and Senate Republicans each really get out of this, I guess, broadly legislative Republicans get out of this legislation, it was a compromise, so we can assume everybody won a little bit. What did they win on exactly? Yeah, so when Lucille and I talk about this bill off air um, and we start texting about winners and losers, I inevitably text back and say, I really hate talking about winners and losers. <laughs> but, and the reason it's so hard on this particular bill is that 
I think we don't know because it's up to the Utilities Commission, which is going to review Duke Energy's first carbon plan, first plan to reduce carbon at the end of next year, and then kind of review it every two years. And the Utilities Commission is appointed by the governor. And the governor after 2024 is not going to be Roy Cooper. So we have some idea of how this is going to play out over the next little bit, but not over the future after that. But as far as what the governor got that he wanted, he wanted the 70% reduction by 2030 and net zero codified into law. This was part of the, the clean energy process that he set out under Executive Order 80. This was his recommendation. And it's really a, it is a meaningful step towards addressing climate change from this state, which I think a lot of people wouldn't have expected even a decade ago when there was some pretty notorious climate change legislation being passed in North Carolina. As far as what legislative Republicans got, the Utilities Commission has to consider certain factors when it's deciding how these reductions are going to be set out. And one of those is reliability. So, and another one is, is least cost, by the way, which Republicans also care about quite a bit. So that could, in theory, and again, we don't know yet because the process hasn't happened yet, help shape what comes online as these coal plants come offline. Is it natural gas? Is it more solar? Is it a nuclear plant? Or is it a wind farm? I mean, there are all these options, and this all is going to play out over the next initially decade and then 30 years. Yeah, so there are some things we can point to, you know, that show who won what. But yeah, it's really up in the air in terms of the long-term future. And it's been hard to pin down exactly, you know, we know Cooper got to codify his clean energy plan, and that's an easy win. But beyond that, everyone's sort of quiet about, you know, what their big wins are. They more talk really broadly about the legislation and how it's great for North Carolina. Um and then last question for you, are there any cons to this legislation since we've heard, you know, from legislative leaders and the governor about all the pros? And are there any people who object to the legislation now that it's all said and done? So the, the biggest concern that we heard on the floor and also throughout the committee process was that the bill doesn't protect low-income customers enough. Um, there are a lot of people who have trouble paying their power bills and there seems to be kind of some unanimous agreement that, that their bills are going to go up under this legislation. Part of that and a part that we have not mentioned yet somehow <laughs> is the multi-year rate structure, oh, yeah. which was a really contentious part of the first piece of legislation. And it kind of, Apparently, it slid back into this legislation at like one of the last minutes. Um, heard that from a couple people, and so under that plan, Duke can does not set their rates year by year. Can choose to not set their rates year by year. They can go to the Utilities Commission and ask for one rate year, and then up to a four percent increase in the second year, and then another increase of up to four percent from the first year's rate in the third year, which could mean from year one to year three, your bill rises 8%. So 
And and along with tied into that, there are some performance standards that they can meet. Those can be shaped by by Duke, and then the Utilities Commission has to sign off on them, and they're negotiated through the rate making process. But um, low and moderate income protections are one of those that could be considered. But there's not a program set up for for LMI customers under this legislation. There's not really a lot of other protections. Um, Senate Republicans will say that there are some other things in the legislation that do provide some protection. Energy justice advocates will argue that none of those do. So there's nothing concrete in here that that really seems to protect these customers. That's really interesting. I'll be interested to sort of watch how I feel like people are still kind of processing the impact of this legislation since it moved through the process at the end so quickly. And so I'll personally be watching for what people say about it, you know, in the coming weeks and months. Adam Wagner, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.